Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. I'm Adam Feuerstein, and I'm looking right at Damian, also here in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, October 18th, and here's what's on the docket this week. President Trump wants to force drug makers to disclose drug prices in their TV ads. Drug makers don't want to do that. Stats Washington correspondent Nick Florco joins us to break down the story. Humira, the world's best-selling drug, just went off patent in Europe, ushering in a wave of lower-cost biosimilars. We'll explain why Humira won't see competition in the U.S. for another five years. Genetic privacy is increasingly in the headlines. Kate Black, global privacy officer at 23andMe, joins us to talk about how she and her company think about some of the thorniest questions in the field. And last but not least, we'll dive into another lightning round. We'll talk about big money for a prostate cancer drug, what to expect from Europe's big cancer meeting, and the legacy of the late Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. But first, a word about Stop Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at STAT with a STAT Plus subscription. STAT Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to STAT Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. First up, we're going to talk about TV drug ads and a big change that might be on the horizon. Alex Azar, Secretary of Health and Human Services, gave a speech earlier this week in which he made a big but also much-anticipated announcement. Let's listen in. We are proposing to require American drug companies, for the first time ever, to include in their TV advertising the list prices of drugs paid for by Medicare or Medicaid. Patients deserve to know what a given drug could cost when they're being told about the benefits and risks it may have. They deserve to know if the drug company has pushed their prices to abusive levels. And they deserve to know this every single time they see a drug advertised to them on TV. So Rebecca, how do drug makers feel about all this? Well, Adam, they are not on board. Just a few hours before Azar's speech, drug makers tried to essentially preempt the announcement. The president of the trade group Pharma said the organization's members had pledged that their upcoming TV ads will direct viewers to more information about how much a drug might cost. For example, they might send patients to a page on a company website. But notably, that stopped short of what Azar actually wanted, which is the actual price of the drug in an ad. All of this could set up a legal battle with big implications. Stats Washington correspondent Nick Florco joins us to talk about what that might look like. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Nick, the government wants drug companies to put prices in their ads. So how soon before my mom and dad, when they're watching the local TV news, will start seeing that? If I were to guess, it's going to be quite a few months. So right now, this is just what's called a proposed rule. And the government has to go through this kind of deliberately slow and clunky process before they actually finalize a regulation. And so, Nick, as you reported, the drug industry is not particularly fond of this proposal. What is their reasoning for pushing back? Basically, what they're saying is you want to force us to include our sticker price in our ads. We don't want to do that. And the First Amendment of the Constitution says you can't make us. And they have a point. Courts have found that 
the First Amendment protects the right not to say something just as much as it does the right to say something. And FDA has been down this road before, and it didn't end well for them. FDA tried to put graphic warning labels on cigarettes a few years ago, and a court killed that proposal because they found that it was considered what's called compelled speech. So, Nick, which companies are going to be most affected by this if it does end up happening or going to court? So it's worth noting that not all companies run TV ads. They're really used only for these sorts of top-selling branded drugs. According to my math, five companies, Pfizer, AbbVie, Eli Lilly, Amgen, and Allergan account for about 50% of the drug ads that customers saw on TV in the last 12 months. And Pfizer is the company that's really most affected by this idea. There's multiple companies that kind of track which companies buy ads on TV, and every data set that I looked at showed that Pfizer buys the most ads. According to one data set, Pfizer runs ads for seven different drugs. And for each of these drugs, they run multiple different ads. So for example, Pfizer ran nine ads in the last 12 months for its drug Lyrica, which is used to treat nerve pain. And so Pfizer would have to update every one of these ads every time their drugs list price changes. So Nick, the stated goal of this whole idea is to reduce or at least control price increases. How would putting these prices in the commercials actually accomplish that? So it's shaming. They want to shame companies into not taking drug price increases. But I really love the administration's attempt at dancing around that word. Here's what they actually say in their formal regulation. They say, quote, it will provide manufacturers with an incentive to reduce their list prices by exposing overly costly drugs to public scrutiny. If that's not shaming, I don't know what is. Honestly, we don't know how well the idea will work, though, because it really hasn't been tested before. HHS Secretary Alex Azar compared it to when, in the 1950s, car companies were required to post their sticker prices for their cars. But one economist I talked to really disagreed with that comparison because when a customer can see a sticker price for a car, they can use that to negotiate directly with the car dealer. But when a consumer sees the sticker price for a drug, they don't use it for anything because they're not the one negotiating with the drug company. That's the insurer and the hired middleman called the pharmacy benefit manager. And there's actually some fear that this could mislead consumers, for example, into not seeking out an expensive drug because they just think it's too expensive. So, Nick, you mentioned this is likely to be a long and slow process. What's the next thing we should look out for on this issue? So it'll be interesting to see if the government kind of gives in any way on this. But my guess is kind of that they won't. As part of that deliberately slow and cumbersome regulatory process that I mentioned earlier, the government's required to accept comments on the proposal from the public. And that includes drug companies. And they're required to respond to each comment. And so sometimes the government really does take these sorts of comments into account. So you have a proposed rule, like what we saw on Monday, and then a year later, a final rule comes out, and there's some big differences. So if the government actually changes anything in this rule, especially at the behest of the drug companies, that would be super interesting. On the legal front, though, it's likely that a court wouldn't find that drug companies have the standing to sue over the regulation until it's actually in effect, which, as I said, could take months, if not years. And so in the near term, we're probably not going to see too much action on the litigation front besides lots of grandstanding from both sides. But I'll be watching that, too, because, frankly, the the trading of jabs between HHS Secretary Alex Azar, who's a former Eli Lilly executive, and some of his former colleagues is really interesting as well. Well, Nick, we'll be watching your reporting on this closely, too. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. 
Reporters like us who cover the biotech and pharma world have a term for products that deliver big commercial sales. That word is blockbuster, and we typically append it to the drugs that cross over the $1 billion annual sales threshold. There are very successful drugs that bring home multiples of billion dollars in sales. So I guess you could call them mega blockbusters. And then there's Humira, the world's biggest selling antibody drug, which is used to treat rheumatoid arthritis, several different forms of psoriasis and autoimmune diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. This is my body of proof. Proof of less joint pain. And clearer skin. This is my body of proof that I can fight psoriatic arthritis with Humira. This year alone, Humira, which is owned by the pharma giant AbbVie, will record sales approaching $21 billion. So it's a super mega blockbuster in a category all its own. But this week, the Humira profit rocket started to sputter just a little bit. On Tuesday, a key patent on Humira expired in Europe. The patent expiration allows five different companies to begin selling so-called biosimilar or virtually identical copies of Humira at a lower price. It's important to remember, though, that Europe only accounts for about one-fifth of Humira's global sales. As you'd expect, the U.S. is where AbbVie generates the majority of its sales for the drug. And here, Humira enjoys at least another five years of patent protection. So how does the same drug, approved to treat the same diseases, now face cheaper biosimilar competition in Europe but remain patent protected in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question, Damien. And I think the answer starts with lawyers, lots and lots of lawyers. And all those lawyers who work for AbbVie file lots and lots of Humira patents. According to the Wall Street Journal, the main U.S. patent for Humira actually expired in 2016. But AbbVie, with the help of all those lawyers, have filed and obtained more than 100 additional patents on the drug. And these additional patents are valid into the 2020s and 2030s. So additional patents, does that mean the drug has gotten better? So the Humira that's sold today has not changed substantially since it was first approved way back in 2002. It is the same basic drug. But what AbbVie has done, and patented, is change the way the drug is manufactured and formulated. The company calls that research and development and innovation, and thus justifies longer patent protection. And that justification works in the U.S. because the legal system is set up in such a way that makes it difficult and risky to challenge the validity of patents. Yeah, right. Case in point. You know, there are two biosimilar versions of Humira that are already approved in the United States, but they haven't launched commercially because of legal challenges by AbbVie. Now, those cases have been settled, but the agreements mean that the biosimilar versions of Humira won't hit the market here until 2023. That's five years later than in Europe. And AbbVie is not the only drug maker exploiting the U.S. legal system to delay the entry of lower cost versions of its biologic drugs. The first biosimilar was approved in Europe in 2006, and there are now 20 such drugs on the market. And however, here in the U.S., the FDA has approved 12 biosimilar drugs since 2015, but only five of them are available for sale. So this all flies in the face of pharma's so-called grand bargain with society. For a generation, the basic framework of the drug industry is that companies spend a bunch of money to invent a new thing, charge whatever they want for a finite period, and then the patent expires, and that thing goes generic and basically becomes a public good. The AbbVie example illustrates that that's not really happening the way it used to. Is that likely to change? It's hard to say. So the FDA has made noise about this issue, but there hasn't exactly been a groundswell of concern from lawmakers or patient groups or or really anybody who might be able to agitate for change. But 
you know, that could change if people get angry, which has always been the case. Like five years ago, drug pricing was at most a niche issue. And now it's daily headlines and the stuff of political attack ads. That could be the fate of biosimilars in time. These days, DNA testing is making headlines in politics and criminal justice, and genetic privacy is increasingly in the spotlight. At 23andMe, the industry's best-known company, the executive tasked with thinking about safeguarding DNA is global privacy officer Kate Black. Kate's job is to bring an eye to privacy when it comes to developing new features, educating customers about the company's policies, and working with third-party vendors. Kate recently sat down with us to talk about how 23andMe is navigating the oftentimes fraught waters of privacy. Kate, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I want to ask you about a story that's been making tons of headlines lately, and that is law enforcement's use of genetic data to crack cold cases. So the most famous example, obviously, uh, is when investigators used an online genealogy database to make an arrest in the Golden State Killer case. 23andMe has never complied with a request from law enforcement, but in your privacy policy, you state that a subpoena could, in theory, compel you to do so. So as more cases get solved this way, are you concerned that, you know, that may come to pass? 23andMe was the first in the industry to publish an online transparency report detailing in very uh, specific and unwavering terms that we would do everything possible in order to protect information from being turned over to law enforcement or government agencies. We really want to make sure that we are putting ourselves out there as taking that position um, because it's important that we can communicate clearly and well to our customers that we, like every other company, is subject to subpoenas and search warrants, and we may ultimately be in a position where we do have to give over information. But if that were to be the case, we would inform the customer to the extent that we are available and able to do so and make them aware of the type of case and issue at hand. Though I believe that our policies and procedures and approach to the topic will uh, prevent that from coming to bear. So 23andMe and some of your peers recently took a pledge to safeguard privacy. And critics kind of pointed out that there, there might be a hole there, which is what third parties like drug companies and academics do with customer data once it's been shared with them. What do you make of that criticism? I can totally understand why um, that may be a topic of interest to the individuals that have reported on the topic and the public as well. I think our principles that we outlined and published were really a first step in making sure that all genetics companies, regardless of their position, are taking a step and making sure that their information um, practice principles are in line with industry standards. I think the principles were a really important first step to protecting customer information and making sure there was a baseline set of principles that would protect and uh, secure customer information in online genetics. Whether or not this will be the end-all be-all is yet to be seen, but we certainly intend to make it a living document that tackles different issues and the next generation of questions later on down the line. It's important to me to have that dialogue with other companies and make sure that we're all addressing issues and communicating freely and openly about things that are important to customers to make sure that we can protect all of our consumers in a way that makes sense and is uh, forthcoming and transparent. So on a related point, 23andMe emphasizes that when it shares data with drug companies or academics for research purposes, those data are de-identified and they're aggregated as a privacy safeguard. Critics, though, say there's no guarantee that you can't triangulate someone's identity in that form. Is this something 23andMe is concerned about? 
De-identification and aggregation is a really important first step in protecting customer identity. That's a principle that's widely accepted in HIPAA and other privacy rules. But we certainly understand that it's not a panacea or a solution to protecting customer privacy. So if a customer does make the voluntary decision to participate in our research program, we will at a baseline always de-identify and aggregate their data. But on top of that, we make sure that there are very specific access and use controls for any time a researcher, either internally or one of our collaborator, uses the data. That's why all of our collaborations ensure that there's no attempt to re-identify individuals, that access is strictly limited to qualified researchers, and that it's only used for the purposes of the intended study. So one facet of 23andMe is when the company licenses customers' data to drug companies or academics, those customers don't get a cut of the proceeds. There are a few newer companies like Luna DNA and Nebula Genomics that are proposing to give customers something in exchange for that DNA. What do you think of that model, and is that something 23andMe has ever considered? I can't say that I'm familiar with that model, so I can give you a little bit of background of how our research program works. Um, As you mentioned, it is completely voluntary and opt-in, and if customers do choose to participate, they get a number of value-add facets back. They may receive insights, they may get information about new studies or publications that are relevant to their disease, and in some cases, if they choose to participate in an ongoing study or collaboration, they may be paid for the time it takes for them to take surveys. We've worked with the external IRB, which is an ethics review board, for the last decade to really set up our research program. They've overwhelmingly indicated that any sort of profit-sharing model or large sums of money may impact an individual and make them make a decision in a more biased way than whether or not they just kind of at a basic level are comfortable participating in the research program. So in the conversation around privacy right now, Facebook has become something of a crucible. One thing that's striking about what they've been dealing with there is that there were some intrusions, like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, for instance, where Facebook was not really aware of what was going on. And so I'm curious, how does 23andMe think about unforeseen threats like that? First and foremost, it's important to us to make sure that we have a full picture of how our information is being used and how it's being protected. So unlike Facebook, we're not in a situation where we would kind of open up our database to another set of users for a use set that we're not kind of familiar with or understand. I think what's really important to remember is, unlike Facebook, you know, our users pay to perform a service and get genetic testing results. Um, And it's important to us that we can deliver those reports and make them available to customers in a safe and secure online portal that is not subject to um, a lot of the platform questions that Facebook has addressed. So in that context, it's also important to note that when you're a user of 23andMe, you can opt in to these various data sharing programs, right? That's correct. At a baseline, a customer has their sample process with us and receives a set of reports. They can choose which reports they want to see and which ones they want to open. Any additional features or services or tools or opportunities are entirely opt-in based and completely voluntary. The same goes with our research program or any of the other features we have. Kate, we appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, it's time for another lightning round. So first of all, Adam, what happened to a company called Endocyte? Oh, you had to bring that up, Damien. Thanks a lot. 
Uh, yeah, Indosite, kind of a smallish biotech company, got acquired by Novartis on Thursday for $2.1 billion. The object of desire there was this experimental prostate cancer drug going into phase three clinical trials. And yeah, I was rather skeptical about Insight about a year ago, so I had to write a column today admitting that I was uh, woefully wrong about that. And so this acquisition comes in the midst of some turbulence in the stock market. That's right. As we've been kind of hammering on about, and so have others, the main biotech indices have been down over the past week and a half, as have just stocks and various financial instruments in general. And biotech had actually slipped into the negative for 2018. So Adam, do you think a big deal like this will have reverberations on the sector as a whole? Well, it's a big deal for Endosite. It's not such a huge deal, you know, $2 billion for Novartis, kind of a small deal for them. But it will be interesting to see whether or not, you know, any sort of small mid-cap biotech M&A, you know, kind of helps ignite the sector, move it higher, improve sentiment. I think you can make a case that it will. But as always, with all the volatility that we're seeing, and we mentioned this last week, you know, it's, it's kind of an up and down sort of thing. Next up, a quick item on a topic we've covered a few times before on this podcast migraine drugs. Damien, what's going on there? Right. So as we mentioned before, there are three virtually identical preventive treatments for migraine that all want FDA approval within about six months of one another. And as we and other people had mentioned, that seemed to set the stage where in the name of competition, these companies would be slashing the prices that they would charge payers in a race to the bottom in order to get formulary coverage. And the news this week is, at least in the early innings, it kind of looks like that's what's happening. Express Scripts, which is the largest pharmacy benefits manager in the U.S., decided to cover two of those migraine drugs, but not a third one. And so what that basically sets the stage for is the gamesmanship of offering rebates and discounts in order to win over future pharmacy benefits managers. And it kind of underlines concerns that a lot of people had going into this, which is, it's not totally clear how lucrative these drugs are going to be because of those competitive dynamics. So coming up this weekend is the big annual meeting of the European Society for Medical Oncology. It's starting in Munich, and it's going to attract some of the biggest drug developers and oncologists from around the world. Adam, what data readouts are you going to be watching for? Right. It's called ESMO. And of course, we'll see lots of cancer immunotherapy data from big pharma companies like Merck, Bristol, and Roche. A lot of this stuff is kind of hard to parse out. I think one thing that's interesting is that Merck is kind of highlighting an early stage cancer immunotherapy drug. It's called the Sting Agonist. Typically, Merck doesn't really highlight early stage drugs. So I think people will be interested to see what they have on offer. And then there are also lots of small biotech companies that are trying to develop, you know, cancer immunotherapy drugs that will be combined with checkpoint inhibitors. So we're going to see a lot of that data, too. And finally, this week, Paul Allen, the famed Microsoft co-founder, died of non-Hodgkin lymphoma at the age of 65. And he's obviously very well known for being a co-founder of Microsoft and for being the owner of the Portland Trailblazers and the Seattle Seahawks. But he also played a fairly major role in the life sciences. That's right. Paul Allen was a huge supporter of biomedical research. He founded the Allen Institute and bankrolled it to fund things like the study of the brain, the study of the inner workings of the cell, and just the generation of cutting-edge ideas in the life sciences. Paul Allen's death was sort of sudden. I mean, just about two weeks ago, he'd gone on Twitter to say that his cancer had returned, but that he was optimistic about new treatment. That's right. I think it was really sad to see how quickly he ultimately deteriorated. I think it goes to show cancer doesn't discriminate. You know, even someone with all the money in the world and the best possible care, we can presume, died so soon after a recurrence. And it shows, too, I think, how much progress we still need to make in fighting cancer. 
that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. A big thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And one final note, we'd like to send a big congrats to our podcasting colleagues at the Boston Globe, who are topping the charts with a new podcast series that examines the life of former Patriots tight end and convicted murderer Aaron Hernandez. It's a really compelling podcast, and you should check it out. The Read Out Loud is not quite topping the charts, but we do strive to get there. So if you are enjoying what you hear, please tell a friend or two. Word of mouth is a great way for us to spread the word. And as always, you can send comments or thoughts to us at readoutloud at statnews.com. We read them and we appreciate them. See you next week.